0: This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And what a day, what a show, what is happening in the world in America. Amazing. In a few moments, we will catch up with my old friend, Dr. Ted Malik. He's got a theory of how we can set up uh, government workers, government work to make it more efficient. Uh, You'll hear that and a lot more commentary on where we are just a week or so before the election. We'll also get a replay Of the interview I did last week with Martin Dugard, his book called Breaking, excuse me, Taking, (laughs) Breaking Berlin, Uh, Taking Berlin, his taking series. The first one was Taking Paris. This one is Taking Berlin about the World War II, uh, key cities and key times. A very interesting book. We'll talk. I'm going to replay his interview because his book is out officially today. Uh, Great guy. And I'm proud to be a part of that. Um, So uh, we'll get to that in a few moments. All right. But first, what you need to know? The news broke in the last 24 hours, and in particular, Tucker Carlson had on his television program uh, a journalist named Lee Fang. Lee Fang, I believe he writes primarily at The Intercept, which is an online journal, sort of uh, left of center, anti-government, or at least critical of the government, especially uh, associated with uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald. He's no longer there, but I think he founded The Intercept uh, and the Snowden uh, the snowden leaks um and uh, uh uh the um coverage of that so Lee Fang has a very um well sourced uh essay uh coverage of the fact that uh, american government uh, forces government agencies were meeting with the social media companies uh to address quote disinformation end quote in the run up to the twenty twenty election now I, I someone said about this is this news? Uh, you know, what's news is that we see the, the paper trail and there's these emails and documents from the government, but I'm not sure it's news. We sort of all knew this. But allow me to please point out to you how directly this confirms my theory of the narrative machine. Remember, what I've said for years now is that the narrative machine is made up of three components. They're not exactly co-equal, but they're components that are similar in scope, uh, but have different backgrounds, different skill sets. The narrative machine is managed by big media, big tech, and big government. And so you have the three working together to define the narrative and then to dominate the American people with that narrative. And you have to break out of the narrative machine in some way, you have to know enough to see it. You have to watch another channel. Maybe you watch Fox News and you get kind of pulled out of it. But even Fox News sometimes will be sucked into some of the narratives. But the narrative machine, the confirmation in Lee Fang's coverage is that the key departments, and they're not always the intelligence community, but the ones we can see are related to uh, important services, say it like that, Homeland Security. And, uh, and you have to think if we found the paper trail for some of the government agencies, Homeland Security, FBI, that the darker security forces in the government are also meeting with them. And they're meeting with uh, Facebook and they're meeting with Twitter and all these executives. And again, my point here is that the narrative machine is a combination of neuroscience, big tech, figuring out how to drive people's uh, thoughts and their brains a certain way, combined with brainwashing, which is big media, using the power of television and the power of of uh, personalities, uh, big name people, uh, ratifying uh, judgments on certain pieces of the narrative by using, say, 50 or 51 intelligence officials signing a letter, that kind of thing, right? And then big government. And more and more, we're seeing that big government is blatantly, in the room so that's what the narrative machine is now if you think you can break that narrative machine or beat it or uh, uh, or disperse uh dispense that's a better word dispense your own narrative or get to the true narrative i you can but it's harder than it looks you can get your get your narrative out or get the truth out but it the odds are long when you're faced with those three monstrously powerful entities all of big government and all the forces in the room with all the big tech facebook and google and let me be clear we're only seeing the ones that got caught do you really think that there's not uh, as i said earlier darker corners of the federal government who are meeting with you know unknown pieces of the big tech and big media companies ones that we're not even seeing you wouldn't even know about. Of course, of course. I mean, you don't, and one thing, by the way, you, one thing you you don't see a lot. Did you notice you don't see a lot of coverage of Google Alphabet, you know, as the parent company, Google, YouTube, you don't see a lot of them getting in the mix, do you? I mean, you don't see them being as uh, criticized as Facebook criticized as Twitter, uh the, the TikTok gets a big target because it's owned by the communist regime but you know youtube google has been very clever about staying below and they have as much power as anybody they might have more because of their influence on what you see based on searches especially and uh, what you therefore what you know and then what you do but this admission or this um paper trail by lee fang goes to the heart of my point on the narrative machine and now pause and say to yourself well Is the narrative machine obvious to you now? Maybe, maybe it is. But are there aspects of it that you can't even tell? You don't even know. It's like the dog that didn't bark. I mean, it it feels obvious to me that the narrative machine went into overdrive to justify the Ukraine and that everybody in the Ukraine was either on the side of light, Ukraine, or the side of darkness, Russia. And that seems overdone, but it's been pretty effective. Most of the Republican Party and much of the Democrat Party is on board with that vision. That narrative is the dominant narrative. Is it true? I'm not sure. It doesn't feel true to me because I don't trust anybody. I did an interview the other day. I said my motto is distrust, then verify. You know, the old Reagan thing was trust and verify. Distrust, then verify. Because I just don't trust any of it from the beginning. But again, that's one that you can see. The big uh, the uh, big 2020, the big lie, they called it, and they try to say it was a perfect election. And at a certain point, the narrative machine is in overdrive. Big tech is silencing voices. Big media is brainwashing people. Big government is saying there was no, no problems here. Nothing, nothing to see here. And you say, is that a narrative that was forced on us? Sure feels like it. Are the counter narratives very difficult to get out? Sure. Sure feels like it. Are we getting to the truth? Doesn't feel like it. The narrative machine is so powerful and we're watching it happen in front of us. And the question is, what are we missing? What, what narratives are they telling us that we're missing? We don't even know. It's like the air we're breathing. We accept it. We accept it as what's around us. It's very worrying. But important that it's becoming uh, out there and exposed. And again, is there a way that the Republicans, if they get power at the federal level or state attorneys general or others, you know, uh, Eric Schmidt running for U.S. Senate as is the attorney general of Missouri, he's done a great job. He's the one that's getting to the bottom a lot of this, or at least getting us a glimpse. All right, we got to take a break. We'll, we come back. We will talk with uh, Ted Malik and we'll replay that Martin Dugard interview. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Many of my listeners know that I love talking to authors. And in the last uh, year or two, I've had the chance to visit with Martin Dugard, who has written a gazillion books. And the only thing, Martin, and by the way, martindugard.com is where you can really see everything he's been writing and doing and uh, track things. He's got a new book out on uh, November 1st, Taking Berlin in the Taking Series. We'll talk about it in a moment. But I don't think I realized, Martin, I knew you had early in your career, you'd written a book, or maybe more than one with Patterson um, and that was a big deal to me in my head. I thought that, that guy knows how to write and uh, and, and but then I re- then I looked a little closer you wrote a book either with him or about uh, Mark Burnett who's one of the iconic figures uh, in, in America. I mean he, he, he created Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, I mean he, he deserves all the credit and all the blame. Uh, we can go there but also of course Bill O'Reilly. So my first point blank when somebody co-authors a book with you, you're a professional writer are you the guy writing and, and and he or she is giving you ideas
2: you know it's um <clears throat> i'm gonna give away trade secrets here it's, <laughs> it's different and it's different in every case um mark is an old friend actually mark when i back when i was in the corporate world striving to make it out and become a writer full-time cold called me one day and had read some of my stuff and at the time he didn't have two pennies to rub together but he convinced me to All the way to Madagascar to write stories about a a team of his that was doing an adventure race, a two-week adventure race, which launched his career. When I got back from that gig, um, I quit my corporate job and that launched my career as well. So Mark and I have stayed in touch throughout the years and we're going on 30 years now. so when I write right for Mark I just write everything <laughs> and, I, and I just you know I, I let him look at it and he might change a few things uh, with James Patterson it is a formula it's like he sends you an outline he sends you um, the you know the way he wants things written um, you do the research you send it in um, and then he puts it into James Patterson's voice and he does you know he is such a prolific writer yeah. a really great guy really great to work with And then with Bill and I, we have a, it's a very intense collaboration. You know, I research, I put that research in narrative form. I send it to Bill. Um, and then he looks at it, and then we get on the phone, and literally Bill will read every word out loud, and the stuff he doesn't like, he will change, hmm. put it into his voice, might say to me, go back and do more research. But three different ways to write books. Yeah. And I have to say that other people have approached me about writing books, and that formula doesn't always work because not everybody – is meant to collaborate. It's just one of those things where some people think that when you write a book, it just magically appears and there's no work that goes into it. But everybody has to do their share if you're, if you're doing a co-author gig.
1: Yeah. Uh, we're, uh, again, we're talking with Martin Dugard and uh, I send people to his website. He talked about some of his early writings. If you go to martindugard.com, you can go back and see all the different uh, books he's written and things he's, he's mentioned already. Uh, uh, before I go, I will, I will talk about how t- the Taking series is only you, so it's really your voice, your style. And I want to talk about the newest book, Taking Berlin, which is just out. But I, I do want to. Um uh, stop for a second on that uh, on the uh, on our discussion right there and ask you about um, how, how does it how does a book um, does, does that mean that when you're a, a writer like you are you'll get lots of you just said it's sort of random people will call up and say hey I saw you wrote a you know a co-authored a great book because you're not a ghostwriter some people are ghostwriters you never know who they are Martin Dugard is a well-known writer um, so do you is is that a different thing is there are your are friends of yours ghostwriters that are just purely in the background
2: Oh, sure. I know people like that. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's a different thing, because when you do that, you you have to completely submerge your own voice, right. and you have to find the voice of other people. And I don't do ghost stuff. It's yeah. not like it's a vanity thing for me. But... Uh, I do like the sense of collaboration, and you know, usually I'm very a very solitary person. But when you find someone, or you know, an individual or an idea to collaborate on, it, it's nice to have both voices present on the on the title page.
1: Uh, one more question on that: you mentioned Patterson's style. Do you do you know you must? I mean, I think you must. But the uh, Edward Stratemeyer, the Stratemeyer Syndicate, where all of the Nancy Drew books and all the Hardy Boys books. I, there's two reasons. I, I my family is originally from Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is where Stratemeyer's from. But I also loved the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew growing up, and only Bobsey Twins, and only later did I learn about this incredible formula, I mean that Edward Stratemeyer had come up with and for decades and decades, he would send the outline and, and it would be it was this sort of, and he took all the credit. Did, have you tracked that guy? Do you know who I, who I mean? <laughs>
2: Um, no, but it makes sense because it, I've, like, like any you know book nerd. <laughs> yeah. I grew up uh, with the hard, I, I grew up with the Hardy Boys, and you know, and, and when there was a the Hardy Boys book, I might read an NC Drew book. Um, yeah, yeah. But I will say, but I w- but I will say that that formula, you know, it goes all the way back to Alexander Dumas, the guy who wrote the Three Musketeers. Right.
1: right.
2: He he was very prolific, prolific in his life, but he he had he he farmed out a lot of his work and put <laughs> his name on it.
1: Yeah. All right. Now to the book taking berlin so first first part of this these series are in your voice this is you and i've only known you uh, talking to you uh, with the taking series so that on one level that must be sort of uh i mean i know before these other collaborations you did lots of writing yourself but this is a very successful series now the taking series and it is uh your voice right i mean that's a taking paris was the first book uh taking berlin is upcoming in a few days uh that must be its own satisfaction i suppose
2: yeah you know uh you know I did nothing but the killing series for gosh eleven years mm-hmm. um and so you know I got very comfortable you know, enjoy working with bill and but there's a, there are a lot of little flourishes and a lot of little alleys that I like to go down right. um and that bill would bill would say no we're gonna let's take that out um so it's nice to be able to keep him in <laughs> and also too to you know, to not to not write trying to sound like Bill O'Reilly. It's nice. To, it's nice to write, sounding like me. And yeah. a lot of the, a lot of the little things that I came up with when we wrote Killing Lincoln, the first Killing book, and a lot of the little stylistic things, like you know, writing in the present tense, uh, mm-hmm. you know, writing you know, short, snappy chapters, kind of little, you know, James Patterson-ish, All these little lessons I learned other places I brought to the Killing series. It's nice to take them into the Taking series and you know bill bill loves action, bill loves detail and stuff i also I'm a big fan of emotion, so I like to find that 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 cause like why does a character do something why do, why do why do we care about that person so there's a little bit more um there's no less action, but there's a little bit more of that raw human emotion in there.
1: Well, and, and so, certain details you talk about action. I re- is it the Taking Paris book? You'll remind me because you wrote it and my memory is so fading. Um, but th- there's that f- one of the scenes in the early chapters of a, the, a, bomb, a bomb falls on the city like right next to where everybody is and they were having a meal. And I mean, for me, you would tell from re- having read that whenever that was the, the takeaway. Um, we're talking with Martin Dugard again. The, the, uh, his website to follow all of his books, martindugard.com. The newest uh, book is uh, called Taking Berlin, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. So uh, Martin, I know you, I, I, don't, I won't ask if you read your re- the reviews of your work, but I was looking <laughs> through looking at people writing that only a few people. I was one of them. Thank you for that. I had a copy of the book before it was out. And uh, someone and I caught this, too. But someone said uh, in this Taking Berlin short chapters, you already described that lots of sort of action. But also it seemed even more than I remembered in Taking Paris. Uh, individuals and in one of these sort of reviews i don't know who wrote it they talked about martha gellhorn who is was at a, a, a war correspondent of her of her own right that someone you shouldn't say this only but she was married to hemingway that's sort of how we know her but you you ended up using people to carry the moments across was that more intentional this time is that something you found works and you like yeah, because it was different. With
2: taking Paris, everything revolved around a location, and you know, everything revolved around what was happening in Paris. And so that made it more event-driven. You, know, you had a bombing. You, you had a, uh, you know, the the Jews being rounded up and and courted in in the velodrome. You, you had these events that carried that story. Um, the events for taking Berlin, you know, it it starts with D-Day, it goes all the way to May 1945. The events are so big that if I, you know, if I if I want to write a big section about D-Day and then write about Market Garden and, and write about, you know, the actual you know Operation Bagration, the, mm-hmm. the Russian thing, they were so big. They, they're books unto themselves. Um, so what I try to do in the middle of that is is show the action through the eyes of the people who were were vital to the action. So, you know, obviously, George Patton and, and Bernard Law Montgomery were the, the, the right. generals, but also General James Gavin, a 37-year-old two-star general who was at the forefront of the modern paratroop uh, movement. And then but this woman who kind of, I did not see her coming, but she, Martha Gellhorn, kind of came out of nowhere and she was present at all these things. She was. She went ashore on D Day. She stole, stood away in a hospital ship. Went ashore on D Day. Hmm. You know, she was part of Market Garden. She had an affair with Gavin. She, she was there when the Russians and the the Americans linked up in Germany, uh, and she wrote about this vividly. And and she's kind of in this this place where she's only Hemingway's wife. And and that's what I thought of her. It's like, oh, she's, you know, this cute little blonde who is Hemingway's wife. And then you read her stuff and she's better than Hemingway when it comes to journalism. And she was way more adventurous than Hemingway. I mean, she lost her press credentials because the stowaway incident and she still kept finding a way to get herself to the front lines and, um, and continue reporting for the rest of the war. And her stuff is... Fantastic. Just completely wonderful.
1: Uh, Taking Berlin is a book, The Bloody Race to Defeat the Third Reich. Uh, and it's um, um, set in, uh, I guess it starts in fall of 1944 and goes forward towards Berlin. Do you, um, when you, and I want to say, oh, it's Dutton Caliber is the publisher. I always uh, hit the publisher. So if you're trying to find the book, although it's available everywhere, and again, martindugard.com is uh, Martin's website. Um, do you, uh, uh, with Taking Berlin, when you see, see that, and you're so deep into it, do you look at Different events now? And do you look, say, at um, current events, Europe right now, differently? Do you see to yourself and say, you know, nobody really is understanding uh, the difference? I mean, when you talk about World War II and taking Berlin. All of that's different than modern America, you know, whether you're excuse me, modern uh, Europe or mo- the, the world when you're talking about, say, Kiev. I mean, taking Kiev, it's just a different world because of the, the different kinds of. Uh, but what, how do you look at the present uh, world situation with all you've learned?
2: You know, it's it's that's a really good question, and I don't want to go into the weeds politically, but uh there's a lot of a lot of things that happen then are happening again now. And we have people like Putin who is trying to recreate nineteen forty five and he's trying to be a strong man like like Stalin was. And you know, we talked today about the big lie. Well the big lie was actually coined by Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. So and and then it was picked up and then it was picked up by Stalin and then Putin is using it. So you have you have a lot of things that are flashbacks to another very uh, scary time in history, and it's it's just weird to see how this is playing out, especially with the Ukraine. Um, what Putin is doing is complete straight out of World War II. It's just one of those things where, as I watch it unfold, it's almost like you can predict it if you go back and look at the history.
1: Is um so all right? What's next? By the way, I'm going to run out of time. So it's a taking series. There's got to be another taking coming. Is have you? Can you reveal that, or are you, are you uh, waiting to see how taking Berlin is received?
2: Oh, I I can talk about it. It's it's taking London. So, um, and I'm kind of halfway through it. I'm about halfway through it right now. We're going to. I didn't write these in linear fashion. So, we had Paris, which is May 1940 to August 1944. We had, you know, Berlin, which is uh, June 1944 to May 1945. We're going all the way back to May 1940 for the Battle of Britain and the Blitz from. May nineteen forty through May nineteen forty-one, um, and so doing the research, I actually went over to London. I flew in a Spitfire just to get a feel for what it was like to do that. Wow! So uh, we're often we're often running with this new one.
1: That's uh, that will be fun, and, and 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 actually, in some ways, there's a good um, there's sort of a good wave, or the, the the water is is warm for a lot of people. Have paid attention, like to to Churchill and these some of the movies and some of the the uh, war rooms over there, right? That's gotten so much attention. I think you'll find a, a, an interesting Audience. Okay, Martin Dugard, thank you. Anything, anything? I guess I should do this more often, but I don't, I always stomp on uh, authors, but anything um, uh, that you want to offer about the book as it comes out, uh, that sort of interesting that in particular...
2: You know, people know me from the Killing books, and I want to tell people that if if you love the Killing books, you're going to love the Taking series. And in Taking Berlin, as much as I loved Taking Paris, I was just so proud of it. I think Taking Berlin is twice as good. It's twice as fast. It's twice as riveting. The action is heightened, um, and it really it's a very much you are there. Um, I mean, I visited all the sites. Uh, I walk in the footsteps of all these people and I, I take the reader and I put them right there with me.
1: Hmm, great. All right. Martin Dugard, we'll uh, look forward and I'll encourage people and uh, thanks for mu- thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I know it's a busy schedule with a book coming out and all your research. So best of luck with it all. Yeah, thanks very much I appreciate it okay we'll take a break everybody we'll be back I'll put up on social media all those details so you can track them all down as, uh, make sure to link to his website as well as uh, to his previous books and uh, fascinating history and, and writing so uh, it's great and it's very good I, I tell you the best uh, one of the best aspects of it is the short chapters it just makes it easy it's like a, it's made for the modern uh, mind and the modern mentality just bops along uh, and it also gives you bite-sized chunks to read so uh, we'll take a break we'll be right back it's Ed. Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to check in with my old friend Ted Malick and see what Ted is up to, what he's thinking. Of course, across this, across here, Ted, I can see on my shelf is uh, the book. Uh, it Let me get it. There it is. Davos, Aspen, and Yale, one of Ted Malick's many books. Uh, that one's kind of a memoir and uh, written books on business, uh, been involved at the highest level of academia as well as business, and now writes frequently over at uh, American Greatness, amgreatness.com. New piece over over there called titled uh, Government as a Service. Welcome back. Ted Malik. how are you, sir? i um,
3: quite well and I'm uh, feeling very confident going into the uh, next week. Uh, I think the red wave is upon us and there's not probably uh, but maybe three or four races that are even close.
1: And and I think don't you I, I tried to tell this to a friend of mine I said, well, now they're going to steal it. There's a certain point where just generally the politics uh, go so hard. They might steal a couple. Right. <laughs> they might they might find a way to steal a Senate seat or a House seat. But when it's a wave this big, I kind of feel like they you know, you're not going to steal DeSantis as governor, not Brian Kemp as governor of Georgia. Right. I mean, it's uh, just and when you're ahead by
3: 11 points like Kerry Lake is you have to manufacture too many votes i would say the fetterman situation in philadelphia there could be a lot of dead people voting and as somebody said we might find out who's senator of pennsylvania on december 8th
1: yeah that's well that's true you know and we're talking again with uh, ted malik and we'll get to his column um that does make me think of something also it's a funny thing to say but when you have a a, a wave like this when it's over you'll look back and say oh man if we'd spent a little money in X place we might have won that right you know suddenly in uh, for example in Connecticut there's a house race that the Democrats are pouring (laughs) money into to protect. you know so that's the thing that you may regret uh, in a funny way but we'll see all right now back to government as well Uh, let me pause Um, Ted you've seen this back and forth Uh, uh, in in many decades of of watching government and being involved in American government at the highest levels, um, what's your sense? If there's a House and Senate to go Republican, um, is is the Biden administration likely to look more like um, like uh, the Clintons, where they start making deals with McConnell and McCarthy? Is the environment too toxic and it becomes just sort of stalemate? What do you think? Where do you, where would you predict it's going?
3: No, I don't think there's any triangulation to use the fancy word. Uh this is a hell bent leftist party now uh you've got the weird Democrats and the socialists, so you have a choice between the two. I think it's the uh the end of the Biden administration, surely because we'll do what uh always happens in this case, regardless of political party and that is uh we'll have uh uh gridlock mm-hmm. uh now we will pass some bills probably by holding both houses uh but he won't sign many or any of those bills so For the next two years, it'll be on your hands and then sitting on your hands. And then uh, we're probably already into the beginning of the first round of the presidential election.
1: Uh, Ted Malikus, Ted is our, our guest um, I agree with you that it's stalemate I think that's inevitable the business model Of uh, media now and big tech And everything will want it but I do think There's something worth acknowledging we're at The end of 50 years of The centralization of power into The yep. executive branch and so When you say it's a leftist government They'll say well we don't have the house and senate and they'll Bet that you can they can beat the PR Of a shutdown let's say and They're just yep. going to keep moving right the administrative State you reference it in here there's going to be supreme Four rulings on the administrative state, one for ver- the West Virginia versus EPA, which will hopefully curtail things, but maybe not fast enough for a lot of things. And frankly, Biden, the Biden regime doesn't care. They they just act lawlessly and figure, well, we'll play out in court or never and just, you know, keep doing the things they want to do.
3: Yeah. And then there's foreign policy and all those uh, things that intervene in you know in a historical sense. That's why this idea, which needs to be a reality of government as service. Needs to take root, and I think the Republicans, particularly the more conservative, limited government Republicans—that's certainly not the McConnell wing of the party—needs uh, to come to grips with the fact that we are at a different point in time. Uh, businesses surely have already made this move towards—they uh, call it uh, software as a service, so you can do anything basically through the internet and using these interactive uh, devices. So maybe we need to scale down government, have it do only what it needs to do. I'm very suggestive on that front. And then, uh, people could have the scale and access to the government they want at every level. This is not just the federal government. And we could decide what services are actually necessary. In other words, government could get out of a whole slew of different services and we could do it uh, better, faster, cheaper. And here's the one I particularly like. And I think I could argue this persuasively. We could let half of all government workers go.
1: Mm. So this is where I wanted to get to you with this uh, piece. Again, uh, Ted Malik's our guest over at American Greatness uh, Government as a Service. Um, I've often said to people, if you think you can win for president and then come into the swamp and say we're going to cut the number of employees, you're (laughs) you're misunderstanding as you laugh uh, 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 these citizens because there's constituents that protect every department and their names are U.S. Senator such and such and Congressman so and so. And so you've got to come up with a strategy. That looks like progress of some kind and yeah. yet gets mid o- gets rid of things i you know the homeland Security Department creation was the opposite. it combined twenty two departments and created more bureaucracy nothing nothing was eliminated it was it was sort of expanded. is that yeah. part of what you're saying here is it it's a it's a strategy to get to uh kind of um decreasing the the, the size of government yeah not i
3: think get from anybody that is my ideological position that we need less government but we if we could provide it better faster cheaper uh then you know so be it i mean the radical part of my article i mean i i don't even think ideologically people should disagree with that i know some might uh socialists who want just more government government take over of everything uh, and i'm not dreaming here i'm not a utopian uh, thinker <laughs> generally speaking i think the radical part is if we were to take this and say what does government service mean for representation,
1: mm, mm. the uh, the uh, a different. I mean, what I'm actually
3: saying is, of course, is that all these representatives and senators could be term limited, and they could go back to their own Mount Vernon's.
1: <laughs> as if, as if. Uh, uh, I mean, again, I, you know, I, I do a, I do a radio show every uh, Wednesday morning on, on Champagne urbana uh, uh, radio with a, 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 um, Stevie J as the host. His brother lives in Louisiana, is a retired uh, inventor, and he spent millions of dollars trying to get term limits passed. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the power of the incumbent class is yeah. beyond belief, Ted. I mean, is there do you really? It, it, so how realistic is I know what you do. You're a great idea man and people then react to it. And suddenly I notice, huh, those people were talking about something Ted Malik talked about two months ago. What's the the likelihood? And what's the likelihood? Let's say President Trump gets a second term. Does he really? He didn't really reduce the size of of government in his term.
3: Yeah. So that's my hope that someone, if not Donald Trump himself, comes uh, with a a campaign that says we're going to employ this from the top down and it's done. I'm for it. And you can't fight me. Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, we've been having this discussion, I think you were part of one, about abolishing whole departments of governments you Now, as long ago as uh, John F. Kennedy and, and Ronald Reagan, certainly, I mean, Bennett was put in the education department to do away with it.
1: The... Um- well that's right and and again that's my point on uh, you know I used to say we don't need another EPA uh, administrator who's really a balanced we need Mm. someone who will give up power in other words I I almost feel like the next is going to be another Ted Malik speech Uh, the interview process for secretaries of departments for the next uh, Republican conservative president should be hey are you willing to go over there and and reduce your government by your department by 40% of its people and 50% of its power right I mean you could do that would be the the direction of the thing going but it Never seems to happen now, uh, Ted. What about the Supreme Court? Do you do you? I don't know that the Congress, even with new Republican leadership, will mm-hmm. assert its Article One authority to balance the power of the of uh, the presidency. I think they may just hold and hope they get to you know ten of the senators and five of the uh, congressmen think they're going to be the president if Trump doesn't run. But uh do you? How do you feel about the Supreme Court? Is that where you see some of the? uh I know you mentioned the West Virginia EPA case. Is that where yeah. some of your hope is resting?
3: Yeah, no, there is action there, and you know we do have the. Uh... <laughs> depending on mr roberts we do have a nice uh um you know framework for for changing some things as we have proven in you know in the last six months so i think there is some hope that that is a slower more tedious you know back and forth process uh but this technology you know the cat is out of the bag it's already happening everywhere i mean i'm on the board of a company that does banking as a service you know you don't need a bank anymore <laughs>
1: Right, right, exactly. That's that's the uh, that's the question. The, the other part of this is how do we, um, you know, how do we think cl- uh, uh, cleverly? And again, you spent a bunch of your career in in higher education and education. How do we think about educating our kids, uh, uh, our young people for the future? Right, because it's just dramatically changing how what what it would be like. I mean, right now, my wife was the one who says, uh, always says, often says, um, you know, uh, who's going to pull the cart if we're all in the cart? You know, because a lot of people have just gotten in the cart. They have government jobs and pensions and all that. Well we're going broke. Um, So, you know, how we how we change our economy that way, you've got to get out of this cycle, I think, Um, again, the
3: cost alone, I mean, I mean, and again, I put these numbers in my piece. In 2022, the gross cost of all government is $7.3 trillion. You know, we have 31 trillion in debt, we pay 718 billion annually, and it's going up, it's 12% of all federal funding. I mean, we're, we're basically going broke to pay for the bureaucracy. Now, does the government exist, I mean, that's sort of a philosophical question, to benefit uh, the government? Or does it exist for all of its citizens? Right.
1: Right. But the question is politically, you know, the, the, the one thing, the one thing about this, I think you can take on the bureaucrats because I think it's a big constituency. The one you can't take on is uh, Medicare and Social Security and not lose. You know, no. Donald Trump was the smartest Republican in a long time. He said, I'll never touch your thing. That's where they, they tried it if about a week ago. The Democrats, you notice they tried to say, oh, they want to do this and that and take away Medicare and Social Security. I'm not talking about the cost. I'm not talking about the reality. I'm saying about the politics, pure politics. It's very tough. Correct. All right. Uh, Ted Malik has always, well, now preview, what's next? That's always one of my favorite parts of this. What are you working on next?
3: Well, I've got two things I'm working on. Uh, I told you a little bit about betraying Trump, which I, I'm uh, talking to some insiders here, and that's going to be a lot more hard-hitting piece than it was the in the draft. And then I'm working on a piece called Cities of Hate, Why We Should All Leave the City.
1: mm I like it. By the way, Ted, while I have you on, is there any chance that Donald Trump would make a late move to be Speaker of the House? I'd like to see
3: that. (laughs) I've read some articles like that. I think it's an office beneath him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Besides that, you have to go to murder.
1: <laughs> That's funny. That's a good line. All right. Ted Malick, everybody, watch him closely. I'll put it up on social media. Thank you, Ted, as usual. And we'll talk again very soon. Ted Malick, and uh, we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, I'll put it up on social media and everywhere else. Back in a moment.
0: This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin.
1: Big Weed is the $33 billion marijuana industry that prefers to go by its euphemistic term, cannabis. It is spending hundreds of millions of dollars to pass ballot initiatives in five states this year, to defeat candidates for office this November, and to bring a pot store close to you. For the first time in history, more Americans smoke pot than tobacco. The Gallup poll reports that 15% of Americans use marijuana, while only 11% smoke tobacco. While some view marijuana as a harmless pastime to allow teens a relatively safe way to rebel against the wishes of their parents, keep in mind that the weed offered to our youth today is not the same as what was around when you might have been growing up. Big weed is far worse now than the pot of a generation ago. Each year, it's become more potent and harmful. The hallucinogenic drug in weed known as THC has been progressively concentrated by 28.5% in the last half century. As time moves on and the marijuana industry becomes more centralized and normalized, THC levels have nowhere to go but up. The medical journal Lancet Psychiatry reported on a new study that the higher potency of the marijuana, the higher the risk of developing a psychotic illness known as cannabis use disorder. Despite this clear medical evidence, recreational marijuana is lawful in 19 states and the District of Columbia. The increased use of marijuana is linked to upticks in homicides and suicides, a rise in medical problems in general, and an increase in pot-related fatal traffic accidents. Marijuana became legal in New Mexico in April, and almost immediately 478 licensed retailers of pot littered that state. That's more than two-thirds the number of pot retailers in Colorado, which has a larger population, by the way. Whether you call it cannabis, weed, or marijuana, the fact remains that its influence is coming for our children and our communities. As this industry becomes more institutionalized, their lobbying and propaganda arms will only increase their influence. If we hope to keep marijuana out of our communities, the time is now to take a stand.
0: This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. In 2016, the conservative movement lost one of our strongest leaders, but Mrs. Schlafly's work and her voice continue through this radio program, our work in Washington, and the influence you have in your own community. Be part of that legacy at phyllisschlafly.com. We encourage you to bookmark phyllisschlafly.com. And join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Uh, Finishing up today, let me uh, finish up by encouraging you uh, to look around and encourage the people who are running. This encouragement, this, this statement is um, not about who's winning, not about who you think you can help, but we just got a couple of days left. If you know somebody who's running, if it's your neighbor, your friend, running for Congress, state rep, running for county council, running for whatever, do, find a way to send them an email or a text and say, thanks for running. Don't ask how to help. It's late to help. I mean, if you want to, you can. But just say, thanks for running. It means a lot. It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of guts to run for office. Lots of people say they'll do it. Lots of people um, think they can, and then they can't. They got lots going on. But when people do, it's a great, great thing for us. And you need to say thank you for it. I can tell you, when I ran for office, I, it, it's such a terribly hard thing to do because it's zero sum, right? You either win or lose. It's just over or you're winner. If you win, you. I, my, I often joke, you, you forget how hard it was. If you win, you just move on, and you kind of think you're great. But if you lose, you're like every, all your friends disappear. It's like the end of a game. At the end of like a Friday night football game, it's counting down. There's a you know, minute left, and there's, you know, you're on the one-yard line, you think it's going to score, and then you don't score, and the buzzer goes off, the game's over, and you're, everyone's gone. Within 10 minutes, everyone's gone. I'll never forget on, in, in uh, November of 2010 at the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, celebratory gathering when it was announced that I lost, everybody was gone within 10 minutes. It was like silence. It's a funny feeling anyway. But so thank a friend that's running. Have a good thought. Say a prayer of Thanksgiving. Uh, It means a lot. So let's do that. All right. Uh, Thank you, as always, uh, to the great Noah Dingley, our producer, and uh, Joanna Spilger, associate producer. We will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I'll talk to you then.